BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. I'm Andrew McGregor, presenter of BBC Radio 3's Record Review. Welcome to this podcast edition of Building a Library, in which our reviewer, Russian music expert Marina Frilova-Walker, compares recordings of a popular romantic showpiece, Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor, finished in 1901 when Rachmaninoff was in his late 20s, and written as a virtuoso vehicle for himself to play. Perhaps you think of it as a romantic warhorse and a byword for virtuosic display, but it's so much more than that, as we're about to find out. And Rachmaninoff's own recording from the late 1920s has set a benchmark for successive generations of pianists. was Sergei Rachmaninov himself, playing his second piano concerto with Leopold Stokowski conducting the Philadelphia Orchestra. The year is 1929, almost three decades after the concerto was written. I love this recording because Rachmaninov clarifies for me the character and meaning of every section in a way that the score cannot do by itself. The concerto begins with a swinging bell, which became a Rachmaninov trademark very early on. It also makes the concerto sound very Russian from the outset, connecting it to Mussorgsky's bells in Boris Godunov and, of course, to the real bells that were a permanent soundtrack to Russian life. In Rachmaninov's performance, this bell has real momentum and it tolls at almost the same tempo as the theme that follows. This might sound odd to us today because more recent performances tend to interpret the opening as a contrasting slow introduction. Here is one of the more extreme examples.
Lang with Valery Gergiev conducting. At the other end of the modern spectrum, here's Evgeny Sudbin in his recent recording with Sakuri Orama. This may seem outrageously fast, but it actually comes closest to the indications given in this score. This is what is so fascinating about tracing the performance history of the second concerto. There is a huge spectrum of variation, and there are also certain performance habits, or even clichés, that are warranted neither by this score nor by Rachmaninoff's recording. But let us go back to Rachmaninoff himself for a moment, so that we can hear how he plays the second lyrical theme. striking rubato effects cannot be gleaned from the score, which only contains a couple of ritenuto markings for this passage. Rachmaninoff's performance, however, tells us very clearly what the theme is about. It becomes lost in a sweet reverie before pulling itself back to reality, but then floats off again. Throughout the first movement, we find episodes of lyrical transcendence cut short by the music that displays a sense of obligation and steely resolve. In more plainly musical terms, there are passages of flowing rubato that alternate with strongly rhythmic passages. Rachmaninoff is careful to keep these two kinds of music distinct and seems to be portraying his own state of mind at this point in his career. He suffered a debilitating crisis of confidence after the public failure of his first symphony in 1897 and eventually sought medical help. His three months' treatment included hypnosis and what we would call today positive visualization, actively imagining the forthcoming success of his new piece, the second concerto. This inner struggle for self-affirmation is reflected in the repeated pattern of stern resolve interrupting the more introspective passages. Thank you. 
That was Leif Uwe Ernstness, enjoying great support from Berlin Philharmonic under Antonio Papano. Rachmaninoff writes Alla Marcia for this version of the theme, which seems a very clear instruction that the performers should keep strict time. Even so, many interpreters preferred to disregard this marking and introduce rubato. Katya Bunyatishvili with Pavo Yervi. I must say that I found the softening of the rhythm throughout this passage very disturbing. It indulgently undermines the style and meaning of the movement. Now listen to what Sviatoslav Richter does here, which is rubato of a different kind. hands, this march becomes personalized into a kind of impassioned speech, and the rubato here is used for emphasis and with great effect. Impressive as this may be, I'm still convinced that the movement as a whole is better served when the march passage is played completely straight. After the severity of this march, the music becomes immersed in a lyrical abandon that dissipates all notion of meter and tempo. If you hope to fall into a hypnotic trance here, then Lang Lang and Gergiev should be your chosen psychotherapists.
That was Lang Lang and the Mariinsky Orchestra under Gergiev, presenting the coda of the first movement in slow motion, but beautifully done and with a very seductive recorded sound that unabashedly privileges the piano. Rachmaninoff would probably have been taken aback by this tempo, but the performers here are just taking the implication of this trance-like passage to a further extreme. Nothing in the composer's grand scheme is undermined. Indeed, this is the culmination of a trend that began in the 1960s as pianists progressively pushed at the limits in this passage. The central movement, marked Adagio Sostenuto, offers further opportunities for this kind of exploration. It contains some quite magical figuration that changes from groups of four notes to groups of three and back, which again subtly loosens the listener's grasp on the pulse. It works rather beautifully when you play it simply, more or less as written. Byron Janus and Antal Dorati. There is something endearingly sincere and intimate in this exchange of roles between the soloist and the orchestra. First it is the pianist who accompanies the flute and the clarinet, and then the orchestra in turn imitates one of the piano figurations to support the pianist. If you noticed a little rubato in the very first bars, this is evident in Rachmaninoff's performance too. By subtle means, he creates the impression that he is improvising a prelude before the orchestra enters. But other pianists show less restraint than Rachmaninoff or Janus, and many tend to slow down before each bar line. We find this kind of breathing effect in Eileen Joyce's very fine performance, which became famous as the soundtrack for the 1945 film Brief Encounter. Mm-hmm. 
This approach continues over the next couple of decades in performances, for example, by William Capel in 1950 and Vladimir Ashkenazi in 1970. But it is probably at its most extreme in the recent recording by Hélène Grimaud, with Ashkenazi now on the conductor's podium. You might have noticed that Grimaud also breaks all of her chords, which gives still more emphasis to that little halt. And to me, this sounds affected rather than convincing or moving. To be fair, though, it's a mannerism with a long history, not just the whim of Grimaud's. The sense of suspended time created in this movement is interrupted by one of the most exciting climaxes Rachmaninoff ever wrote. Together with Wagner and Tchaikovsky, he was an absolute master of building up to a climax, repeatedly taking several steps forward, followed by a step back. It's fascinating to compare how different pianists and conductors approach this alternation between urgency and restraint, since there are several ways in which it can be handled. Here is Benno Maisevich, a pianist Rachmaninoff admired. Benno Maisevich with Malcolm Sargent. That huge pause before the tutti chord makes the moment of its arrival all the more gripping. But precisely because this concerto is so well known, some performers shape their interpretations in opposition to audience expectations. Here is Stephen Huff handling the build-up in an almost counterintuitive way.
Stephen Huff slowing down exactly where most pianists speed up and playing quieter where others play louder, making us feel we're sinking into this gorgeous velvety orchestral chord, quite the opposite of what we heard in Maisevich. But here is an utterly riveting rendition of the same passage, and the trick here is not so much in the approach to the climax, but rather in the burst of elemental energy that follows the climactic chord. The performer is Svatoslav Richter. Sviatoslav Richter with the Warsaw Philharmonic under Stanisław Wyswotsky, a recording that would be impossible to beat were it not for the muddy orchestral sound. The finale of the concerto presents pianists with two distinct challenges. One is the technical problem posed by an almost unplayable passage, and the other is an interpretative problem in handling the immensely popular big tune so that it doesn't sound too garish. Let us look at the technical challenge. I hesitate to say it, but the first statement of the main theme in the piano seems like a miscalculation by Rachmaninov. It's weighed down with so much detail that it sounds more like an elaborate variation rather than the basic presentation of a theme. To make matters worse, the orchestra falls silent at this moment, leaving the soloist completely exposed. Even when a pianist actually manages to deliver all the notes, it probably sounds messy to everyone but fellow pianists. The allegro scherzando, or playful character of the movement, is supposed to shine through this scramble. Here is Nikolai Lugansky trying his best.
Lugansky is very impressive indeed, but it still sounds to me like a mad headlong rush, much more tense than the playfulness suggested by the words Gerzando in the score. Lugansky's insistence on maintaining the tempo of the orchestral introduction heightens the problem. By contrast, the general tendency among pianists is to take this passage a little slower. Even Rachmaninoff did this. Incredibly, Daniel Trifonov actually takes these bars faster than the orchestra's tempo. That was Trifonov with Yannick Neze-Segan. The virtuosity is stunning and Trifonov is in control, but the result is manic nevertheless. Lang Lang is able both to maintain the tempo and to play with precise articulation, lending the passage a delightful and almost dance-like character. But this is precisely because Gergev has taken the orchestral introduction more slowly. That was Lang Lang with Gergiev, producing a truly magical effect with his pearly pianissima. But here is another version, not only very deftly articulated, but also at a quicker tempo. The pianist is Leif Uwe Ansnes. Here it is from the start of the movement to let you enjoy Papano's setting of the scene with the Berlin Philharmonic.
What I value most about Anston's performance of this passage is the sense of willful determination that reminds us of the first movement. And it is very important here, because just before the finale theme comes in, we have eight bars that reiterate the harmonies of the concerto's introduction, the tolling bell effect at the opening. This is easy to miss, but it is clearly there in the score, and I think the resolute character of the Anstner's approach very convincingly ties together the whole concerto. It is commonly imagined that the popularity of the second concerto means that it is lightweight, but this is very far from the truth. Anyone who takes the trouble to analyze the work will find a remarkable piece of musical engineering, dense with interconnections. And now for the other challenge. How should the orchestra and then the pianist deliver that famous tune? A tune that made it to the 1945 hit parade. Full moon and empty arms The moon is there for us to share But where are you? A night like this Could weave a memory And every kiss Could start a dream for two Frank Sinatra with Full Moon and Empty Arms by Buddy Kay and Ted Mossman. I can't say they turned highbrow into middlebrow because there's nothing here that is not already implicit in the character of the tune. Many of the earlier recordings incorporate lots of slides in the strings in the manner of contemporary Hollywood film scores, making it sound like some erotic oriental fantasy. And the pianist can only do so much to mitigate this. Here's William Capel in 1950, an excellent performance, very much of its time. William Capel. 
The difficulty is also that the tune appears three times in the course of the movement, louder each time, the final statement a huge orchestral tutti. We have just heard Capel in the second statement, achieving the fortissimo notated in the score. But in recent times, most pianists disregard this indication and play more softly and dreamily, which can be a very touching effect. Here is Lugansky, intense but also intimate. Lugansky's interpretation here creates a sense of nostalgia and loss, as if there was a price to pay for the victory that will soon be won at the end of the movement. And it is also time for me now to pick a winner. This was a huge undertaking, and I came to admire many more recordings than I was able to play today. Because there have been so many wonderful additions to the catalogue this century, I tried to concentrate on the past 20 years instead of going for already well-known classic recordings. The interpretations that stood out for me were by Trifonov, Lang Lang, Lugansky and Ansnes. Trifonov can create moments of great excitement and his is a very fresh reading, but I wasn't convinced by the over-anxious first movement. Lang Lang's recording with Gergiev has a very seductive sound, but in the end the foregrounding of the piano feels overdone. It is hard to fault Lugansky's interpretation, and he seems to understand Rachmaninoff's message perfectly. But when pressed to choose, I will go for Ansnes. His recording has brilliance, sensitivity and style, plus the added excitement of a live performance. There is also a historical dimension, since the tempos are as lively as in the composer's era. Papano's Berlin Philharmonic is a wonderful driving force with powerful swells and beautiful solos. So let the orchestra play us out with the big tune, wrapping itself around the soloist before releasing him for the final triumphant flourish.
I feel like applauding after that ending. That was the recording of Rachmaninoff's C minor piano concerto number two that for reviewer Marina Frilova-Walker stands out for its brilliant sensitivity and style, for those tempos close to Rachmaninoff's own and for the excitement of the concert recording. So her overall building a library recommendation is Leif Uwe Ansnes with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Antonio Papano and you'll find it on Warner Classics. Full details of that recording and some of Marina's other favourites are on the Record Review website. You've been listening to a podcast edition of Building a Library. Next time, Laura Tunbridge compares recordings of the string quartet by Claude Debussy, and there have been a few new recordings of it released for Debussy's 2018 anniversary. You can listen live if you join me, Andrew McGregor, for Record Review, Saturday mornings from 9 on BBC Radio 3, on FM Online and BBC Sounds. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you'll find much more music, radio and podcasts, of course, on BBC Sounds. This is a download from the BBC. For more information and for terms of use, go to bbc.co.uk slash radio 3.